Thank you, Grayson. Thanks, Garrett and Kendra. Let me pray as we um, begin to consider this text this morning. Our Father, we come to you again and we ask that you would help um, teach us by your word. We pray that it would penetrate our hearts, that we would find hope, that we would leave with a bigger uh, understanding of who you are and be transformed as a result. We believe everything within the service with your spirit's power behind it is uh, nothing short of, of life transforming. And so we pray that that would happen and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let me guess, uh, I think, I think your biggest fear, our biggest fear, my biggest fear, is to be known, to be truly, deeply known. Now you may think, well, wait a sec, isn't that what like social media is all about? Like being known, isn't that the whole point? You divulge everything about you. And isn't that popular? And doesn't everybody engage in that? And that's, that's a very curated version of yourself. I'm talking about like being known all the way down. Known, known. Because here's the thing. We all have within our hearts a little nook, a little corner that we put caution tape around that says don't enter. Because we believe that if somebody saw that part of our hearts, we would be swiftly rejected. Swiftly rejected. And so we keep quiet. We care, and, and here's what happens as a result. We carry around our sins like a pack mule, just burdened, shackled, slogging our way through life. And I, I'll read it again. It's the text, it's the psalm that we just read at the confession, what David says. When I kept silent about my sin, when I didn't reveal that little area of my heart that has the caution tape around it that says, do not enter, stay away, stay out of, when I didn't say anything about that, my bones wasted away, through all of my, my groaning for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you worked in the last couple of weeks outdoors? Two, three, four hours? zapped. Your strength is gone. David says, that's, how, that's what happens to me when I keep silent about sin. And of course, we, we do because, you know, church is kind of, we think of church as a place where people come that have their lives put together. It's, we kind of think of it as like a country club for the spiritually minded person. It's for good people. We often don't think of it as a hospital for the sick. A place where people come to honestly reckon with their sin, their rebellion, their spiritual brokenness, their failures. L listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his uh, classic Life Together. He says, the person who is alone with their sin, in other words, the person who keeps quiet about their sin, is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, you know, we, we engage in corporate worship and there's common prayer and there's fellowship in the service, but still Christians can be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship never occurs because though they have fellowship with one another as believers 
And as devout people, they don't have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. Right? We've, we're kind of, we, Bonhoeffer's saying, we kind of come and we play church. And we get all dressed up and, and we present this polished version of ourselves. And sure, we have fellow, that version of ourselves has fellowship with that version of everyone else. But there's no real fellowship because we never get underneath to, to, to our fellowship as undevout and oftentimes unfaithful and oftentimes sinful people. He, he can, uh, Bonhoeffer continues. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. And so everybody conceals his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We keep quiet. We dare not be sinners. And so we remain alone with our sins living in lies and hypocrisy. Now, I know we've been at this for more than a year now. And maybe you've been in this fellowship, you've been in this community, and you're beginning to feel encroachment upon that part of your heart. You're beginning to feel as though maybe the the polish that you presented for the first year, that that, that, that kind of righteous facade, it's beginning to crack. And what's really inside is beginning to show or you feel in community builders or these gatherings that we have with one another, you're, you're beginning to feel people sort of pressing in on these areas. And it makes, you ner- it makes us wildly uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. We don't like it. But it's good because here's what happens. When we crack through that facade, we, we get into the heart of gospel territory. It opens up vistas of grace. And that's where the transformation really begins. And this is why. This is why we speak of God's love every week. His grace. Because it's very hard to believe that God would actually love us. That, that Jesus loves us. That, he, that he, he saved us. And not just those things, but he even likes you. He calls you his friend. That's difficult for us to believe. And here's the shocker. He knows that little part of your heart with the caution tape around it. And not only does he know it, he knows it better than you do. The the only one who fully knows you, fully loves you. And isn't that our fear? If if we would reveal that little corner of our heart, we would be rejected. We would be left alone. We would be kicked to the curb. But get this, the one who knows us all the way down loves us all the way down. That's the good news of the gospel. And what's the alternative? Our bones wasting away, our strength being zapped from us as in the heat of summer. So, what we're going to see this morning in our text is a major failure of Abram. And guess what? God's promises hold. So let's just, we're just going to kind of look at this story. It's a powerful story. Um, And so the title you'll see is Abram's Waywardness and Ours. So verse 10, look look at what happens uh, in this story. There's a famine in the land. There's trouble in the land of promise. This is the land that God sent Abram to, and now it's, 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 it's a famine. He left, Abram left at God's command, and now he comes to this land, and now his trust in God is really going to be tested. Does he stay in the land and risk starvation? Or does he go and try to 
figure things out. Remember, the two promises are land and offspring. Those are the two promises that God has made to Abram, land and offspring. We know that Sarai is barren. We've talked about that for a couple of weeks now. It's a fly buzzing about. Um, We've talked about uh, Sarai's barrenness, and, and, and now guess what happens? The land becomes barren. And so what, what is Abram to do? Well, let's see. Look at verse 10. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now notice what happens. It says, so. Uh, what's the basis upon which Abram departs for Egypt? Okay, let's, let's contrast this, maybe. Look at verse 4, if you have your Bibles open. It's not, it's not in the printed order. Look at verse 4. It says, So Abram went as the Lord told him. And in verse 1, God said, Go. And verse 4 is Abram's response to God's directive to go. But here, the Lord didn't tell him to leave. He saw with his eyeballs and he felt with his gut... Like, we've got a problem on our hands. We don't have any food. So he took matters into his own hands. And by the way, it's a severe famine. It's a severe famine, verse 10 says. And so there's no food. And so, you know, in some ways it's, it's, re- it's reasonable that Abraham, Abram would do this. It makes sense, right? Because Egypt, and we don't know what caused the famine. It may have been drought. It may have been locusts. It may have been army worms that marched across his, yard, his, his area like they did our yard this past week. Uh, we don't know, but something happened. And what, what we do know is that Egypt has a reliable source of water, at least, and was more, uh, more resilient to famine because of that. The Nile, right? And so he, goes, he, he decides to go down there. And by the way, this isn't the last time that God's people leave uh, in famine to go down to Egypt. But here's what we do know. Abram is not operating out of God's leading and God's direction. He's walking by sight, not by faith. He's he's saying again, I see with my eyeballs a problem. I feel with my gut. I'm hearing the moans and the groans throughout the night as the kids are starving, as the family, the kin is starving, and we're beginning to think we might die as we're beginning to see our rib cages more pronounced. We've got a problem, and I've got to do something. Remember, remember Brueggemann's uh, point last week? He said, the promise of God is never easy to believe and practice. It must always be believed and practiced in the midst of those who practice more effective and attractive ways. And Abram is tempted to do what we're all tempted to do. It's more effective to go where the food is if you're starving. And it's certainly more attractive than to just sit and wait. He sees the promise, he knows the promises of God, and yet the situation on the ground is so dire. I wonder if, if you've experienced something similar. You moved to, to this area, You're, you started a new school. We got, I know we've got lots of kids starting at a new school, and you've got, a, you've got a friend famine. And you don't know what to do, and you can't find any friends. That, but then there's this group, you, you know that you might compromise some things. By going there, but doesn't God want you to have friends? And so you go and you start hanging out and you feel like you're maybe not being faithful. But you're, it's a friend famine, right? You've got to deal with that. You've got to go find friends. 
Or maybe there's an intimacy famine in your, in your marriage. And so you realize there's problems and you start sort of just, just kind of flirting around with um, dating sites or Tinder. Just kind of, you're not going to do anything. You're just kind of checking things out, seeing what might be out there or in your mind. You kind of go to a more uh, fruitful land on that because surely God doesn't want you to have an intimacy famine in your life. Or maybe you've, you've, you've got a job, it's, it's good work, you're loving your neighbor through the work, you're honoring God with your work, but there's a bit of a pay famine in this job. And you see, a, a more lucrative option comes your way, but it's not, it's not a good way to love your neighbor. It's not, it's not as fruitful of a job to be in. What do you do? Christians are called to difficult things. Sometimes God brings famine, whether friend famine or relationship famine or job famine or whatever it may be, he can bring those things into our lives. It may even be a food famine. But here's what we can trust. It is all for our good. Because what, is, what God is doing, remember that little caution tape area of our heart? When difficulty comes... When suffering comes, you know what he does? He, he's putting a blowtorch to that part of your heart. And he's just blowing, purifying that heart. That's what these famines do. That's what testing does. It purifies. It makes us into the people that God wants us to be. And is it painful? Is it difficult? Yes. But it's transforming. It's transforming. And get this. Even our Lord experienced famine in the wilderness, right? And he was perfect. Uh, Bruce Waltke puts it this way. He says, Abram has a choice, famine and stones in God's will. So the choice, famine and stones in God's will or bread outside of it. And remember, the same choice was presented to Jesus there in the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days and, the, and Satan said, why don't you turn these stones to bread? You're hungry. Your body needs food. And remember what, God said, what Jesus says in reply? Man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. Abram failed that choice. He had an option. Live in the promises of God, the word that God has spoken to you. Stay. He goes. He, 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 he fails and he goes to Egypt. And this is what can so often happen when times get tough. I mean, just in the last section, he was, he was following the Lord's leader, leadership and guidance. He was building altars to the Lord. He was worshiping the Lord. And now the times get tough. And he buckles. He buckles under that. He's walking by sight and not by faith. But here's the thing. This is only the beginning of a major Failure. So let's keep let's keep going. Next, uh, so moving on. Um, he he. They leave, and as he as as he and his clan are making their way to Egypt, something dawns on him. He says to himself, "My wife is at 65, 70 ish, is extremely attractive. She is something else." And I'm worried, well, let's, let's just read what he says. Look, look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, 
I know that you, are a that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. See, Abram's making the calculation in his head. Do, 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 do. Okay, you're, you're, you're attractive at, six, at, at this age. You're attractive, and if they see me as the husband, they're going to want you, and I am going to be an obstacle to them getting you. Therefore, they will probably kill me, and that's a problem for me. So he hatches a plan. Look at verse 13. Say, you are my sister. That it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you see what he's doing? Hey, I see the storm coming. It's dangerous. It's violent. There's a tornado coming. It's outside the house. And I've got some things. My most important possessions are out there. Go out there and get them so that I can have my possessions and I don't die. Or, hey, Sarai, there's a bullet coming straight from my heart. Jump in front of that bullet so I don't die. Or there's a grenade. The pin's been removed. It's at my feet. It's about to blow. Sarai, jump on top of the grave, on, on, the, on top of the grenade and your grave so that I don't die. He's saying, look, Sarai, your, your, your life for my comfort. That's, that's the calculation in Abram's mind. And he's not even shy about it. Say that you're my sister. Now, the reason he wants, why, why, why say that you're my sister? Well, because that puts him in a position of negotiator for trading his sister to the Egyptians. And I don't know how he thought that was going to play. Well, actually, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Here's what he's saying. Your life for my comfort, my security, my safety. Uh, Bruce Waltke, in a commentary on the book of Proverbs, he says, if you have to summarize the whole thing, the book of Proverbs says that wickedness is, wickedness is this. It's disadvantaging another in order to advantage yourself. That's what wickedness is. It's when I disadvantage another person in order to advantage myself. That's exactly what Abram's doing here. And it's wicked. It's, it's evil. And as we're going to see, it creates a lot of problems. Now, it may, it may seem quite extreme what Abram's doing, and yet when you frame it that way, disadvantaging another for your own advantage, do we not do this all the time? You know, the kids, hey, let's, dad, let's go play, let's go do this, and you're, you're scrolling through scores, or you're scrolling through your news feed, because you just got to keep up with, you're just kind of enjoying yourself at the expense of your children. Or ignoring spouse or ignoring friends because you want comfort and you want to relax and you want this and that. It's a, it's a temptation. Okay, so let's keep reading through this. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And guess, so guess what? Abram's right. He's not just a doting husband. They find her attractive. Verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So do you see, you see what happened? Sarai is now 
out of Abram's household. She's now with the Egyptians in Pharaoh's harem forever, as far as we know. She's gone. She's gone. I mean, one of the questions is, did Abram know that this would happen, that this thing would go down like this? I don't, I don't personally think he did. I think he thought, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to drive a hard bargain, and I'm going to negotiate my way out of this situation and give them a deal they won't take so that I can keep Sarai and keep this whole thing at bay, keep them off my back, and the whole thing goes downhill fast. We don't, we don't know the details. But whatever happens, it got bad. And notice this. Now, the Hebrew is so sparse with its words, right? These stories are very bare bones. But there's all kinds of little subtlety to it. Did you notice what Sarai is called once she enters Egypt? One thing, and one thing only. She's not called by her name. She's called the woman. And that's what she is in, in Egypt. She's, the wo- she, she's, a, she's become a piece of property. Her, her personality, her, her gifts... Her image bearer status has been extracted. She no longer has a name. She's just a woman to be traded. A bargaining chip. You see it in verse 14, 15, and even 16, the pronoun is used. She's a bargaining chip. She's property. And she becomes property for the king's use. Can you imagine Abram that night alone in his tent, wondering what in the world happened? Riddled with doubt, despair, fear. His wife is now with the world's most powerful man. And think about the promises, right? Do you see how the the promises are like, they were barely dangling by a thread and the thread was God's faithfulness to them. Now it's like even more threadbare, right? I mean, he's out of the land. He's not even there anymore. And now the, the, his wife is no longer in, in his household. She's with the Egyptians for the rest of her life, as far as he knows. And then not long after, look at what happens. The Egyptians come with all kinds of wealth. They show up with camels and donkeys and servants, slaves, sheep, oxen. Just a whole train of treasures for Abram. Along with the message, Abram, your sister is awesome. Thanks, the Pharaoh. Do you see what? Look, look, at, look at verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. All of these things were given to him for the exchange that was made. Um, we have a word for that. Someone who manages the exchange of trades and human, humans. This is not good for Abram. And And yet, look at... You know, from the very beginning, the story has been a a long shot, right? Land, offspring. It is incredibly long, incredible long shot at this point. But, again, 
these characters in the Old Testament, this story is not primarily about them. And our own lives are not primarily about us. They're about God and his goodness and his faithfulness and his love and his resolve to fulfill the promises that he makes to his people. And we're going to see God swoop in and resolve this thing. So this is the final piece of the story. How is it resolved? How could Abram do such a thing? Will he ever get Sarai back? Will God abandon him in his promises? And we see verse 17 and following uh, how God resolves the situation. Look, look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Now, you may ask the question, well, how, does, how did Pharaoh learn that she's his wife all of a sudden? We don't know. Maybe my guess would be that Sarai told him. Said, hey, I think I know why you're getting those weird diseases, why you got that scratch on you or those boils that are showing up on your body. This is what's going on. Why did you say, the Pharaoh says, she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev, right? I'm guessing that was a pretty long, quiet trip home, (laughs) that journey. Uh, But get this, look at uh, chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So, just to pile on the failure of not not obeying the Lord and going down there in the first place, hatching this perverse plan, and it's sort of going south very quickly. Um, Not only that, but Abram, who is called to be a blessing to the nations, has become a curse to the nations. To the people of Egypt. They've got these boils because of his little plan that he hatched. And his deception. And not only that. But he is being rebuked by a pagan king in this passage. Like this, this is a low point for Abram. But guess, but do you see how, God is, how merciful God is in all of it? Sarai is back. The promises look better. They're back in the land. And not only that, they left the land in complete and utter need with not a, not a thing. And they come back rich. Rich. They leave paupers and they come back princes. Rich. Even, even through all of that mess, they come out with wealth. So back to the question that we spoke of. I don't know what area of your heart you have the caution tape around that says do not enter. I don't know what your failings are, but you can bank on this, and it's the song that we've, we've sung. His mercy is more. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. His grace is greater. Right? This is, this is the story. I mean, how, how else do you make sense of this passage? If you're reading this in a Sunday school class or reading it in a family devotion, what do you, what's the takeaway? Abram's a complete failure. The takeaway is God is good. God is faithful to his promises. 
God delivers. You may think, well, no, but my sins are too great. Have you sold your wife to a more powerful man for, get, for gain? Have you, uh, have you slept with another man's wife who happens to be a dear and loyal friend who has served you with his life? He's basically one of your secret servicemen. Have you slept with his wife and then murdered him in order to cover the whole thing up? David did. Have you, th- have you strategically planned and plotted how you are going to wipe out a religious minority? Paul did. Christians. Look, the, the people that we find in, scriptures, uh, in the scriptures are, they have, they have so many failures. And this story of God's word is not about them. It's about God's faithfulness to his promise. His mercy is more. Great is God's faithfulness, even through Abram's wavering. I mean, look at what he does. He, Sarai, Sarai is returned. They get back in the land, and now they're blessed. If, if you've screwed things up royally, there is, that kind of pivot can happen for you, too. Everything's just unraveling, it's a mess, and God just pivots the whole situation. Now, there's consequences to these sins, but God has, has promised that he will carry us through, that he will turn all of those, that sin into our good, that he will sanctify us through it somehow. Now, Bonhoeffer, back in our book Life Together, Listen to what he says. This is sort of how he resolves this question of, of our fellowship with one another as devout, religious, faithful people, but not ever having fellowship as failures and sinners in an effort to kind of hide our sin. This is, what he, this is sort of his resolution to that. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to your brothers and sisters. As if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. And so Christian community, our community, King's Cross Church, it's the truth of Jesus and his mercy, Bonhoeffer says, that should rule that should govern our interactions. If Jesus forgives a sinner in our midst that's repentant and confessing their sins, we forgive them too. We don't harbor things against them, but we forgive as Christ forgave us. In fact, you may remember uh, on Friday I sent an email that spoke of these things called fight clubs. And Tim Pierce, um, he... He said, I've never heard you talk about fight clubs. And, and then he said, oh, rule number one, you don't ever talk about fight club, right? It's like, yeah, that's why. That's not really why. Fight club is, um, is in development, but here's the idea. It's groups of men and little groups of men and little groups of women that come together to confess sin and struggles and to fight sin together. And it seems to me that as we embark upon that in the, in the months to come. This story provides a foundation. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. 
And how can Christ be so merciful? You know, uh, Waltke said that wickedness is disadvantaging another for your own advantage. You know what righteousness is? It's the reverse of that. It's disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another. That's what it is. And that's what Jesus did. All of his strength, all of his power. He left heaven and all the glories therein. And he came down to earth. That's a disadvantaging of himself. And he came, and he came not as a king seeking glory. He came in weakness, and he came to serve. And he ended up giving his, he did the very thing Abram failed to do. He gave his life for his wife, his bride, the church. He laid it down on the cross. He took upon, he took upon, our, uh, upon himself our sins, Abram's failure here. By the way, the reason God can be favorable to Abram and faithful to his promises is because Christ came to die for Abram and his sins. And he drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the bottom. Every last drip of that cup was consumed so that we might drink the cup of of his blessing and receive all the blessings of God in Christ. And his mercy flows all the way down, even down to the dark, dark regions of your heart, the little place in your heart that has the caution tape that you say, nobody can come in. His mercy goes there. And that's good news for us this morning. Let's pray uh, as we conclude this sermon here. Father, we uh, are grateful again for your gifts, for your promises, for the resounding message of Scripture. No matter how much kind of piety and sort of um, warm fuzzies we bring to these Scriptures, there, there, is a, there is a truth and honesty and that is refreshing, uh, that is encouraging to, to, to those that know their own brokenness and sin. And we thank you that your faithfulness to your promises is so clear in these Scriptures. And that you made your love for us so concrete in Jesus, who is the perfect manifestation of you. In his death uh, on the cross, which saves us, we give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.